Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Roundtable, where we sit down virtually, of course, with three of Washington's top political reporters to look back on the big news of the week. And this week was full-time politics with the Democratic National Convention, the first political convention held entirely online, with star appearances by Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and, of course, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. But while the convention dominated political coverage, there was other news happening. First, the Senate Intelligence Committee released a report confirming that, yes, it looked like there was collusion between Trump campaign officials and Russian operatives in 2016, if not with Donald Trump himself. Second, the Postmaster General suddenly waved a white flag and agreed to postpone any cuts to the Postal Service until after the election. Three, former top White House aide Steve Bannon was arrested for allegedly pocketing millions of dollars donated to build Donald Trump's wall. And President Trump had good things to say about QAnon. Wow, so much to talk about and so little time. So uh, let's dive right in this week with Eliza Collins, national political reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hello, Eliza. Welcome back. Hi, good to be here. Sudeep Reddy, managing editor of Politico, joining us again. Hi, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. And Alex Seitzwald, a new daddy. (laughs) Phoebe, Phoebe, welcome into the world. And uh, Alex, national political reporter for MSNBC. Hi, Alex. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so I want to get your take uh, on the convention overall, but let's just start right with the climax of it. Last night, uh, the speech by presidential candidate, presidential nominee, Joe Biden, for the last month or more, uh, the Trump campaign has spent millions of dollars uh, telling America that Joe Biden was Sleepy Joe, Slow Joe, a man who was so mentally defective he could not put a full sentence together. Uh, Is that what we saw last night? First, here's a quick clip. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme. With passion and purpose, let us begin, you and I together, one nation, under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each other. For love is more powerful than hate, hope is more powerful than fear, and light is more powerful than dark. This is our moment, this is our mission. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight, as love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. And this is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. I promise you. Thank you, 
And may God bless you and may God protect our troops. So, Eliza, Sleepy Joe? Well, what the Republicans did was they set the bar very, very low, and Biden appeared to clear it. I mean, this was one of Biden's strongest speeches of the campaign. He can he can uh, ramble and be gaff-prone, but this speech was none of those things. He read off a teleprompter. He had energy. He was authoritative. And so, really, he cleared the very low bar that Republicans had set for him. How about it, Alex? Did he... Uh... Um, rise to the occasion, do you think? Yeah, I think he did. I've, I've heard a lot of uh, Joe Biden's speeches, and he is not known as <laughs> have, the best. Haven't we all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he, and he's definitely, you know, they're, they're not typically memorable, and if they are, they're usually memorable for the wrong reasons. He's, he's not a Barack Obama or, uh, you know, he's not the best order in the party. Um, but I think this speech really worked. I think it was really hopeful, uh, which, you know, is not surprising in politics, but actually is in this particular political moment, especially after uh, people like Obama and Bernie Sanders had these really dire uh, warnings about President Donald Trump and the state of American democracy. So I think to, to have Biden close it with uh, a very uplifting message saying we can meet these challenges, we can overcome this, was um, you know powerful. And I was also just struck by a lot of the, the kind of most powerful moments and lines from the speech are the kinds of things that, uh, if you step back, kind of seem like tr typical political pablum about, you know, us getting over this together. But they feel different in this moment because the president has uh, is so atypical from from normal American presidents that just by holding up these really kind of basic, universal, almost like Disney movie values about you know, uh, coming together and hope and uh, uh, th th these kind of like 101 mm -hmm. American values, Joe Biden can seem like he's projecting a, a, a new, a bold vision uh, for America because of the context that he's in. Uh, and Sudeep, it might have been a little hokey, but um, he started out standing at the podium in darkness, right? And then they turned up the lights, uh, which turned out to be sort of his theme, right? We're going to go from darkness to light, that, that was his theme. Uh, I, I remember another candidate in 2016 having uh, one of those moments, and that was what I was thinking of, uh, uh, the, the Trump entrance at the RNC. Oh, right. It was very, it was very different, and there, there was a theme behind this, but it also helped and, and didn't have uh, Joe Biden just staring into, uh, into the, the open camera uh, for a couple of seconds, which other speakers did, and that was a little awkward. So they were trying probably to accomplish a few things. And what they really did here was they, they kneecapped the Trump campaign. Um, the Trump campaign had built itself up on this one premise that for the, the next 75 days, they were going to, to, to seal the, the case and call, call Joe Biden names. And they, the, the Biden people basically just did a reset. Joe Biden got out there and said, yeah, those nicknames don't work. And so the caricature is gonna is gonna be a problem for the Trump campaign because the delivery was contrary to everything that they've set up. And anybody who, who just watches that is gonna see something different than what Trump is saying. And it goes to the core credibility issue that the president has at the moment. So let's talk about the convention itself. I mean, we are all political junkies. Um, I've been to every Democratic convention since 1976, uh, except this one, of course, and almost every Republican convention. Uh, this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. 
the party out of power, the tradition goes, always goes first because they get to make the case about why there should be change, why we should change the team that's in the White House right now. And this year they had to do it online uh, for, the very, for the very first time. Overall, did it work? What do you think, Eliza? Well, we'll have to talk to voters, but what they were able to do is they were able to package stories, particularly stories of real people. I'm thinking of last night, there was, um, his name was Brayden. He was a 13-year-old who had a stutter who had met Joe Biden, and Joe Biden had shared tips on overcoming a stutter, and Brayden gave this very moving speech about that. You know, the woman who introduced Biden for nomination was a security guard that he he had met in an elevator, and they were able to feature these people. Now, these people have shown up in past conventions, but they were able to package the videos and really feature their messaging in a way that appeared to me to be effective. And the other thing is that they could stay on message. I mean, when we're at these conventions over days, it's not just what's happening on stage, it's what's happening around. And in 2016, there was still a lot of anger between the Sanders delegates and Clinton's team. And that was taking place. I mean, there were protests. They took over the press tent at one point, and those things were getting reported on. So when you're all virtual, you get to avoid all of that drama and just focus on the exact words and pictures that you want. And those go up for two hours, and then you're done. Yeah. So they were given um, two hours, Sudeep, two hours of primetime, free primetime TV, four nights in a row. Did they take uh, the Democratic National Committee, um, make good use of that time? You know, the, the first night of this convention, I was watching it and thinking, oh, my God, what is raining down on us? What are we going to have to watch for the, the f next few days? It was there, it opened awkwardly. You wondered, are, is, are people going to really want to watch this? And as it built up, you could tell that there, there were some challenges with being the first mover. Uh, but it, it got better over time. The stories became more compelling. Uh, it got it got not just more bearable, but uh, more meaningful. And so the the whole point of a of a convention is to introduce your candidate. And uh, we were uh, the the junkies were hit over the head over and over and over with the Joe Biden story. But but most importantly, people who were dipping in and out were getting what they needed from it. Um, and that was to understand uh, a little bit about the character of the candidate they're pushing, because that's one of the key metrics the, the, the Biden team needs to use against Trump. Do you think we'll ever see uh, another, uh, uh, let's say, conventional convention, Alex, or is this the new normal? <laughs> I think there are parts of this that just clearly worked better than a traditional convention. The roll call uh, of the states where they went around and oh. you actually got to see people in their home states in front of these iconic backdrops, you know, the, the arch in St. Louis or the Las Vegas sign or a beautiful beach in Hawaii. That was just so much better than going to some section of the nosebleed stand to hear somebody say the state bird of Missouri is whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, and then and, going to uh, it. Alex, Alex, don't forget the calamari from Rhode Island. Uh, the calamari from Rhode Island. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Uh, so I, I, I will, I think if, if uh, any convention does not repeat that in the future, that is malpractice and uh, is uh, unfortunate for viewers like us who have to sit through it because that's typically a boring section of conventions, but uh, I actually found really compelling this time. There were other parts that I think really did not work, um, as Sudeep was saying. 
And uh, I, I thought that the videos of the, the quote unquote regular people were good, but the interviews with them I, I thought were kind of awkward. So I, I guess that we're going to go to a, kind of a more hybrid um, style, more like an awards show where you have a, a central stage, you have maybe an MC, which was new this time, um, and you have speeches from there, but you also have video packages, you maybe have remote um, you know, check-ins with people. Uh, and so I, I think that this opened a lot of possibilities that maybe they wouldn't have explored without the coronavirus. Um, some of which, many of which, will be incorporated. But you know, for for the for the junkies, for the kinds of people who like to go to these conventions, they're going to want to go to a convention. They're going to want to go to the yeah. parties. They're going to want to meet up in the bar. And uh, I don't think that's going to go away because you know we, we like to sit around a bar and drink and, and schmooze, and, and you, can't, you can't do that on Zoom. Uh, Eliza, was there any one highlight, one magic moment of the convention? I think Michelle Obama. Uh, She spoke Monday night. We know that she is a strong speaker. She is perhaps the most popular figure in the Democratic Party, even more popular than her husband. And she did not disappoint. I mean, she really laid out her case for Biden, talking about, you know, her own experience, seeing the presidency up close, knowing Biden. But then she also really dug into the importance of voting. And there was this line, you know, that she had about putting on your comfortable shoes, putting on your mask, packing a sack dinner, and then maybe also a breakfast because you might be there all night, but it's worth it. And that really stood out. And, you know, there were was a lot of praise from Democrats for that, but that was something Democrats have been struggling to make the case for voters to show up. And, you know, there's a lot of Democrats that I've talked to, especially after covering the progressive wing, have said, well, Biden's better than Trump. You know, I'll probably vote for him. But she really, in stark terms, laid out why they needed Democrats to show up and also to be prepared for a difficult, you know, election in terms of just how much time and energy they had to commit in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit of uh, Michelle Obama here. If you take one thing from my words tonight, it is this. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. We have to vote for Joe Biden in numbers that cannot be ignored. Because right now, folks who know they cannot win fair and square at the ballot box are doing everything they can to stop us from voting. This is not the time to withhold our votes in protest or play games with candidates who have no chance of winning. If we want to be able to look our children in the eye after this election, we have got to reassert our place in American history. Alex, in American history, there's never been a first lady or former first lady who spoke so directly, uh, critically of the incumbent president. That's right. And I don't think there's been one who has the stature uh, to be able to speak so critically uh, of a president. I mean, you know, the, the first ladies are t- typically consigned to kind of um, less substantive roles, and it just wouldn't. It would. It would feel strange. It would not. It would not feel powerful uh, to have them speak. But Michelle Obama is a, is a force unto herself. Uh, she was more successful than Barack Obama when they first met, as uh, both of them are, are have often reminded us. Uh, 
And, you know, I, I think she had the, this book in 2018 that I believe was the best-selling memoir of all time. Um, and there's a lot of people who would love to see her run for office herself, which she has said repeatedly she will not. But uh, I think she, she recognizes her place in the culture, not just in politics, but in the wider culture, because she's, she is a figure who is not just a political figure, but she's a, a cultural figure. And she realizes that she can reach an audience that her husband, that Joe Biden, that Hillary Clinton can't. Uh, she can reach people who are not, you know, political junkies, who are not super um, plugged into political figures. And I think she just spoke in plain English uh, in a way that, you know, was, was devoid of the kinds of uh, phrasings that we're, that we're used to in politics. And I think that's what made it so powerful is that she connected with people beyond the political realm. Yeah. Uh, and Sudeep, if she came out swinging, um, so did her husband, right? <laughs> Barack Obama, again, uh, former president who's sort of been on the sidelines for the last four years, uh, stepping up and calling out Donald Trump by name uh, and really making the case why uh, he was not worthy of being president of the United States, uh, Barack Obama's words. Uh, quick, quick clip from uh, Barack and then I'll get your comments, Sudeep. I have sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. That's how a democracy withers, until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes for them to win. No doubt about that. <coughs> Pardon me, that message, Sudeep. Yeah, you know, Barack Obama, once he left office, his uh, his approval rating uh, was right up there with JFK and with Ronald Reagan in terms of, of how people viewed his presidency uh, through the rearview mirror. And so he is uh, he's been surprisingly quiet through much of the last few years. He's obviously ramped up. And now we're going to see him. This was the opening act where he's going to he's going to be hitting uh, whatever the campaign trail becomes this fall taking that case out there and he will connect with a lot of people who might not have really focused on voting. Um, those, 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 uh, those mystery voters we're always wondering about, and we'll probably be able to, to make the case to get them to show up because that's, that's, uh, that, that is the power that Barack Obama had in his uh, presidential elections. And uh, a lot of what he was saying was uh, similar to uh, to Michelle Obama's case and most of the other speakers. But uh, it, it was clear that Obama was treating it as a as a as one of the big speeches of his life uh, for his legacy, if nothing else. Right. So certainly highlights uh, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama. And let's not forget uh, the first woman of color to be on a, a national ticket of a major political party in this country. It was the first time, uh, other than us political junkies, that most Americans had seen Kamala Harris uh, accepting, here she is, accepting the nomination. I have fought for children and survivors of sexual assault. I fought against transnational criminal organizations. I know a predator when I see one. 
My mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning. And oh, how I wish she were here tonight, but I know she's looking down on me from above. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. Eliza, Joe Biden said last night, uh, the story of Kamala Harris is the story of America. It absolutely is. I mean, she is a first-generation American. She is the daughter of immigrants. You know, she grew up in a working-class family, and she is a mixed-race American. And so this is very significant. I mean, she is the first vice presidential nominee to be, she's black and she's Indian. Um, she's the first woman in a very long time for that role. So she is both barrier breaking, but also has this relatable story. And they really leaned into that. I mean, ahead of her speech, they had a video with her stepdaughter, her niece and her sister, you know, just talking about the moment, really her sister tapping into sort of their, her mother, who is a central figure in Harris's um, life and also her campaigning. I mean, she talks a lot about her mom on the trail. And so they talked about that. And then they showed video clips of young women and girls all across the country sort of reacting to having someone up there who looked like them or had a story like theirs. And so they really were leaning into Harris is sort of what America is in a time when all of these elected officials besides Obama have been white men. Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, there were so many on screen videos of young people, uh, young people of color, um, people we never heard of before, citizens across the country. And then you had Barack Obama, and then you had Kamala Harris. It, to me, um, Sudeep and Alex, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. It, it came across as very much a party in transition, mm. and that Joe Biden's role was, really seems to be like the bridge between Barack Obama and that whole next generation of Democrats portrayed again in all these video clips with Kamala Harris being the person who most represents them. Am I making sense? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is actually part of the, the Joe Biden strategy. Once, uh, as he was closing uh, his case uh, back in February and March for the nomination, he was presenting himself as a transition figure and uh, and promising that he would bring up some of the people who who arrived in this campaign, even though they didn't win uh, among the dozens running for president, they at least presented themselves. And and we saw some of those those names uh, even just last night, seeing the the mayor, a former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, who's, who will have a role in a Biden administration if that comes. So um, there there were there were all sorts of characters, uh, Kamala Harris being at the very top of this picture of of people who will will come out of this as. Uh, as the, the next generation of Democratic leadership. I think one of the cool things uh, about the whole Harris rollout was the initial reaction to it was, oh, Joe Biden made the safe pick. The, the, he, didn't, he didn't do anything too crazy. He went for Kamala Harris, who can you know, kind of appeal to liberals and kind of appeal to moderates. 
uh, it was the the pick that he was always going to do all along. That was the kind of initial reaction. And then I feel like we in the media had to kind of reset and take a moment and be like, oh wait, actually this is kind of a big deal. She's the first woman <laughs> of color. She's she's biracial. She's a woman. She you know is, doesn't have a traditional family structure. Um, and then that became uh, the bigger emphasis, and uh, as it should have been. But I think the fact that it was not initially seen as a gimmick or um, you know a kind of token tokenism, uh, I, I think is, is actually pretty powerful. Is, is how th- th- that wasn't the, the first thing. You know, when when um, Geraldine Ferraro was was chosen, uh, Democrats were behind. It was it was kind of seen as like a, a a hail mary. Same thing with with Sarah Palin. Oh, we got to shake things up and, and pick a woman. But Joe Biden was clearly ahead when he chose Kamala Harris. And uh, it was, you know, a, a pick that made a lot of sense before you even got to the fact that she was a woman of color. Right. So um, I have other stuff to talk about this week, but, uh, the, but the convention was just so dominant. Uh, just a couple of other issues. One is, uh, and let's use the word issues. Um, I was struck by how each night, um, there was a focus on uh, the crises facing this country, and Joe Biden spoke to them last night, too, about, of course, the pandemic, about the economic collapse resulting from the pandemic, about racial injustice uh, stressed every single night, about climate change, uh, about the post office. But my question to you is, are those issues really going to matter? Because the theme that I heard most strongly out of this convention and Alex, you referred to this a little earlier, was not any complicated policy issues. It was just basic stuff like Joe Biden's a good man. Joe Biden's got character, empathy, um, normalcy, right? Joe Biden cares about you. It was basically right back to that simple uh, contrast between Biden, his character, and Donald Trump. Uh, Sudeep, is that what this campaign's all about? That is uh, certainly what they're they're framing it uh, as. Uh, you know, I watched uh, before um, the the convention festivities last night. I watched the the Donald Trump uh, campaign rally that he did in Pennsylvania, and then afterward, I turned to to Fox News and watched the aftermath. And they were trying to to there there were all sorts of other things that were coming up. Uh, mayhem, blood on the streets was what Trump was was predicting if if Biden wins. Afterward, uh, Don Jr. was on television talking about. Uh, China and Hunter Biden and and all sorts of other things. And I just kept thinking, this is not what people are focusing on. This is not what is on everyone's minds. There's a pandemic going on, and there's uh, there we're, we're looking for somebody who will address that. So there was some interest in policy, and that was a big part of the policy, was that we have a crisis on our hands, and it's not being addressed. But they were also framing it around the decency and around values, because they knew that, that Donald Trump was going to position himself uh, to attack Biden on that front. And, and that's where the, the Biden team uh, built so much of their programming. Uh, and Eliza, it was pretty clear, wasn't it, that uh, they kept getting across. Now, Joe Biden's a guy you can trust. Absolutely. Joe and, Biden's a good man. Right. We saw that last night with his former rivals. There was that video where they all talked about their memories of Biden on the campaign trail. And there was this moment when Bernie Sanders, you know, he repeated his line that he always repeats that this is the most, you know, consequential election of our lifetime and that it 
you have to get Trump out of office. But then he talked about just how decent Biden was. And he said, my God, wouldn't that be good to have right now? And that is the message because Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden agree on very little policy. Uh, Biden has moved slightly to the left to appeal to progressives, but there still are a whole bunch of progressives who are very unhappy with where he stands. But he is not Donald Trump. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of these progressives, they say they can't do anything unless Trump's out of the White House. So there's this fascinating thing right now where Democrats have all come together basically through Election Day, and then all bets are off. And until Election Day, they might not talk about exactly what policies they like about Biden's, but they can all agree that he is a good person, that his personal story is one that has shaped him to be empathetic, to be caring, that he is competent. And so we're hearing a lot about that. And that's really fascinating to me that there's basically this coalition that could really expire after November if Biden is elected. But right now, they're all together on this. Uh, it's interesting, too, because Republicans have always been the ones who make the argument that character counts, right? Character counts. <laughs> and now it's Democrats who are saying, yes, character does count, and the guy with character uh, is Joe Biden. And finally, Alex, uh, before we move on, uh, uh, there's a lot of complaint among my fellow progressives that there are too many Republicans given the spotlight at this convention. John Kasich and Susan Molinari and Colin Powell and... Uh, even former Republican Mike Bloomberg. Um, Democrats make a mistake with that? Well, I, I, I see, you know, it's, it's obvious what they're trying to do here, and uh, candidates have been trying to do it for a long time at conventions, but I do think this year is different. Uh, you do have a significant chunk of Republicans, at least Republican elites, you know, office holders and former administration officials, who are just totally turned off by Trump and um, willing to break with him. And Joe Biden is trying to create uh, what David Pluff called permission structures for Republican voters to feel comfortable voting for a Democrat. So they're trying to say, look, here are all these Republicans. Here's John Kasich, who's going to tell you he's not going to go too far to the crazy left. Don't worry, you can vote for Joe Biden. And I think for most candidates, that wouldn't work. Like if, if Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren were the nominee, you could have every Republican uh, in the world up on stage. And I still think voters would not believe you that Kamala Harris or, or Elizabeth Warren was going to represent your values, moderate Republican who doesn't like Trump. But I think with Biden, it, it really could work uh, because the election is not about policy. It's about these kinds of basic values. I think I, I know some actually, in fact, some Republicans who do not like Trump, who, you know, th these are the voters who are deciding between staying home or voting for a third party. And if you they're trying to move them into the, the Biden uh, mm -hmm. column. And so I, I totally understand the progressive frustration here. As somebody put it to me yesterday, that guy, Miles Taylor, who uh, yeah. you know, used to work at DHS, he was there when they were locking kids in cages, as, as a progressive put it to me. So I get the frustration. But on the other hand, you know, if you can swing a few votes, it could make a, a big difference. And again, we've said a couple of times uh, that the overall message every night from the Democrats as well was uh, from Barack Obama, from Michelle Obama, from Joe Biden, you got to vote. Kamala Harris, you got to vote. You got to vote early. Get out there and vote. There are, I think it's important to let our listeners know if there's any question about how you can vote in your state, particularly vote early, voting by mail. Um, there are ways to find out. Um, Eliza, tell us about one. And then uh, Alex, jo join in. Sadeep, if you have anything to add. 
Uh, Eliza? Well, the Wall Street Journal team has done a great job pulling together just like a very comprehensive look of how to vote by mail, what your state does, deadlines. It's put out in these really easy to read and look at graphics. And so I would say that if you've got some questions, we've got a really good website. And it's also in front of the paywall right now, which is helpful for people. to. Okay, and we that's that's good. And we will put that up in the uh, notes, edit notes for uh, this edition of the the uh, uh, Bill Press podcast. Uh, Alex, NBC's also got a good site, huh? That's right, yeah. Uh, if you Google NBC plan your vote, you will find it. Uh, and like what the Wall Street Journal is doing, and I think other people too, uh, you know, you can go in every state. It has deadlines. It has information about vote by mail, voting early, uh, and uh, everything you need is right there. Okay. Sudeep, anything to add? Uh, just research your own state. That's what matters the most. Uh, yep. And spend a few minutes doing that soon. All right, good. Now let's take a quick break and come back and touch on just a couple of those stories that we've been uh, that have uh, popped up uh, this week. It is the Bill Press Pod on this Friday, August twenty-one, with Sudeep Reddy and Alex Seitzwald and Eliza Collins. Uh, we'll take a quick break and be right back. And today's podcast, today's roundtable, brought to you by the Labor's International Union of North America, or LIUNA, under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. They are a real powerhouse in America's labor movement, active, of course, in the construction world uh, and built, rebuilding our infrastructure, active in the energy field, building everything from new solar panels to windmills to traditional old pipelines, and also active in the healthcare field. Field. We salute the members of the Laborers Union, thank them for their great work and their support of the Bill Press Pod, direct you to their website, which is liuna, L-I-U-N-A, buildsamerica.org. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, we're back with our roundtable today. Uh, Eliza Collins, Wall Street Journal, Sadiq Brady from Politico, and Alex Seitzwald from uh, MSNBC, NBC. Uh, A blockbuster report coming out from the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, a long time in coming, But this report sort of confirms a lot that we saw in the Robert Mueller uh, report. Sudeep Reddy, uh, what did we learn? What's it all about? What's the impact? We learned that the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is led by Republicans, uh, are the ones who found uh, a lot of the same things. And they used a lot of the same evidence, of course. Um, And uh, the the, the point of this, this report is to really lay out for for the record what that evidence was uh, in in new terms and they did that the the big uh, uh, effort by the president by Trump and and his team is to say there was no collusion we've heard that a million times from Trump and uh, what this lays out and even though collusion is a legal term this is uh, is not a legal term this is uh, there's overwhelming evidence that Trump and his associates engaged with Russia to try to interfere with the election we saw it in the open from Trump, but this was was a lot more detail about uh, the hacking of the Democratic emails and the leaking of the Democratic emails, and we saw just more bits of evidence showing uh, that very unusual engagement um, by Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and others uh, to to release this information for Trump's benefit. And so I think for the, the sake of history, this will make a difference. I don't know that it will make a, any bit of difference in this campaign because people uh, who have not, who have ignored the evidence already are going to continue to ignore it. You do wonder if it had, might have made any difference had it come out during the impeachment trial, but uh, that's just <laughs> speculation here. Uh, also, yesterday, uh, a stunning arrest of a former top Trump uh, White House aide, Mr. Steve Bannon, uh, on a luxury yacht off the coast of Connecticut. Eliza, what's up with Steve Bannon? The arrest on the yacht makes it all the more dramatic. But Steve Bannon, you know, <laughs> top, top advisor to the Trump campaign in 16, went on to work on the White House, was arrested along with three others for involvement in a build the wall campaign, which had used crowdfunding to the promise was that they would pay to build a wall along the southern border. Um, Prosecutors are alleging that a lot of that money did not go to build the wall, but instead it went to Bannon and others' pockets to pay for personal expenses. Um, The prosecutors are saying that Bannon used more than a million of that to, you know, to pay others involved and then just cover his own personal expenses. And so Bannon's not the first person to be arrested from the Trump campaign and Trump world, but he is a big name. He was key to the president's success in his messaging in 16. And, um, you know, he is someone that was very closely tied to the president. Now, the president and the White House are distancing themselves. They're saying they haven't talked in a long time, but it is it's another name of someone who was close to the president and has since been charged. Yeah. 
Once again, we hear Donald Trump say, Steve who? <laughs> right? <laughs> I never, I didn't know this guy. Uh, and also this week we had a surprising turnaround, perhaps at least. It's still unclear to what extent there's a turnaround. But the Postmaster General suddenly reversed course and said, okay, all those changes I was going to make, cutbacks to the postal, postal Service, I'm not going to do now. I'll hold everything off until after the election. Uh, should we believe Postmaster General DeJoy, Alex? Uh, I would say, you know, trust but verify in the, the Reaganism. <laughs> um, and already the, the verification is, is not looking great. There have been reports from uh, Postal Service workers that sorting machines, you know, these massive machines that they use to sort mail, have been disassembled and are n not being put back together. Uh, so that is not encouraging for people who don't want to see this happen. And uh, the Postal Service also put out a memo to all its employees to stop talking to the press. Uh, so, you know, keep an eye on this. It's still it's still alive. And I just wanted to throw one little historical uh, anecdote in here, which is that that voting by mail has actually been something that the military has done since the, the Civil War. And, and there's even actually one known case of it in the Revolutionary War, because when soldiers were away, they could not vote at their uh, hmm. home precincts. And, uh, you know, so, so this is not a new thing. This is not um, some crazy new experiment. Uh, millions of Union soldiers did it in 1850-whatever. Uh, and, of course, Donald Trump and Melania and uh, family have done it for years. Uh, and, um, and I must say, as a former Democratic state chair of California, that our take on vote by mail was that it favored the Republicans because they were always better at getting people to vote by mail and getting their votes in early, and the absentee ballots always favored the Republican Party. So to the extent that uh, there's any interference with absentee ballots, I think it could end up boomeranging on the Republicans more than on the Democrats. Just my observation. Great conversation, a lot to cover. I know it took a little longer than we normally do, but it was worth it because the Democratic Convention uh, took so much of our time and uh, brought... Uh, so much news to the forefront this week. But we can't let you go without getting your favorite story of the week along the week, convention-related or not. There must have been something that caught your attention and made you stop for a couple of minutes and think about it, maybe get a laugh about it. Uh, Sudeep, you want to start us off with your favorite story? Yeah, you know, Obama's takedown of Trump uh, brought some shock and a little uh, pearl clutching among, uh, among the elites. We haven't seen a, a former president do that. Uh, to uh, to a current president. Um, naturally, the Twitter machine revved up and quickly spit out um, the text of Herbert Hoover at the Republican <laughs> Convention in 1936, railing against FDR and the New Deal. And the key words, and I'll just stop me if you've heard these before, were uh, the march of socialism, the destruction of liberty, the inf uh, infecting of the American people with European ideas. So uh, the, the people might might change, but, uh, but the message sometimes. <laughs> Deja vu all over again, right? <laughs> exactly. I hadn't heard that. That's great. How about you, Alex? Uh, I've been enjoying escaping uh, from American politics as, as much as I can sometimes. And there was a, a great story uh, in The New Yorker that's actually a little bit old, but you know how those pile up. And so I, I read it this week about the Falkland Islands uh, off the coast of Argentina and how they were basically a remnant of English feudal society up until like the 1970s, uh, until the Falkland War. They still kind of had landlords and peasants and uh, they just kind of been this forgotten part of the 
British Empire that had they had forgotten to, to catch up to the 20th century. And then in the span of about 20 years uh, after the war and after tourism came, it went from being basically in the you know 1700s to the 2000s uh, in two decades, and just a fascinating transformation. Uh, I read that story and was struck by how many sheep there are in the Falkland Islands. So many sheep. <laughs> Eliza, what, uh, what brought your attention this week? So I'm also off politics, but this one is pretty uh, depressing. Um, So it it was a Wall Street Journal story about how universities in the U.S. are trying to figure out how to handle international students from Hong Kong and China with uh, the new national security law that China imposed on Hong Kong. So because of the pandemic, a lot of these students are back home taking online classes and the government can censor. And so these professors are trying to figure out what to do, how to grade, how to let people have these free conversations that we get to have in the U.S. Um, But while they are on networks in China and Hong Kong, and it was it's sort of the mix of pandemic affecting schooling, but also, you know, real life scary implications of this new law in Hong Kong. Yeah, I, we haven't seen the end of that yet, for sure. Well, I have to tell you, my favorite story, also out of politics, um, concerns a little battle that took place in the skies over Lake Michigan this week. You may have heard about it. Uh, there was a, a pilot for a drone from the Michigan Department of Environmental Great Lakes and Energy, who was flying his drone over the Great Lakes, surveying the environment, when suddenly uh, the drone disappeared from his uh, view, his uh, viewfinder, whatever he was looking at it on. Uh, and it turned out the drone was taken out by a bald eagle. Uh, And so it was the bird versus the machine. The bird clearly won. Uh, And they (laughs) this is an expensive drone. Uh, They can't figure out exactly why the eagle would have attacked the drone, except they think it might have been flying into the eagle's territory. Uh, uh, And the eagle said, no, this is my territory. Get out of here. But the other thing is this drone was actually named Eagle, and it was spelled E-G-L-E. So I think the eagle might just have been pissed off because they misspelled its name and and went after the drone. But at any rate, I think it's a great... uh, It's it's not man versus the machine. It's the bird versus machine. And uh, in this case, the bird won good for the ball. Don't mess mess with bald eagles is the moral of the story, I guess. Uh, Hey, that's a wrap for today's roundtable. Thanks so much, Eliza from The Wall Street Journal. Alex, MVC, MSNBC, and Sadiq Reddy from Politico. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us and for your insights, as always. And thanks to you all for listening. And please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. Tell your friends to do the same. Follow me on Twitter in between podcasts at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. And as we've been talking about earlier, please remember to vote, to vote, to register, to vote, and to vote early. Tell your friends to do the same. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay strong, stay sane, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.